Advances in digital technology are transforming the way we all do business, and location is fast becoming the nerve centre of the digital future. Why? Because in our global environment, location matters. And most data includes a location component that, when unlocked, will open new lines of inquiry, analysis, and understanding. Welcome to the Locate 20 podcast, where we share with you a deep dive into the lives, motivators, and future legacies of some of the key players at the Locate Conference, Australia's annual national gathering for custodians of location data creation and management. Locate conferences have been bringing together geospatial and surveying professionals to connect, collaborate and learn about cutting-edge industry developments and insights since 2014. Locate conferences provide three days to deep dive into geospatial technologies and harness the power of location. Joining us today, we have Professor Alan Duffy, who is the Director of Swinburne's Space Technology and Industry Institute, finding novel uses for astrophysical knowledge in aiding business and society on Earth. In particular, he leverages his experience of creating and visualising large supercomputer astrophysics simulations to explore remote sensing opportunities. Alan was recently named Academic of the Year in 2020 in the 2020 Australian Space Awards. He is also the Swinburne Node Leader in the new National ARC Centre of Excellence for Dark Matter, Particle Physics and a Chief Investigator of SABRE, the world's first dark matter detector in the Southern Hemisphere at the Staywell Underground Physics Laboratory. At Locate 21, Alan will be speaking about Space and spatial, challenges and opportunities. So without further ado, welcoming Professor Alan Duffy. So Alan, you're a recognised leader in the space industry. Please tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. What drives you? What's your journey been? And where do you want it to go in the future? Okay, well, I'm an astronomer by training. I have a PhD in astrophysics, and it was very much a a research background that was focused on uh, supercomputer simulations, so detailed simulations of aspects of physics relevant for astronomy, so, you know, how galaxies form and, and the nature of dark matter and the like. But critically, that was turning those virtual universes into more similar to what we would observe with a telescope, for example. So there was this sort of matching between the prediction and the observation but really bringing it to the observer and being aware of all of the requirements of data visualization to the limitations, or let's put a positive spin on the the capabilities of the telescope. And that experience in big data, in analytics and data visualization and observational image processing were very transferable into more earth observation related use cases. And that's been really the last few years of moving away from, well, perhaps not even just away, but in addition to astronomical research has also been using the imagery from orbit and also being more focused on hardware or deeper engineering questions associated with space. And all of that now combines in the new institute, of which I'm the director, the Swinburne's Space Technology and Industry Institute, which really has that range of everything from the software to the hardware side and bringing people from different backgrounds, computer vision, engineering, material science, 
those deep expertise and experiences and then putting it with a bit of a space flavor or a slant to it. And that's really my journey. It's what I'm encouraging my colleagues and you know where I want to go in the future with all of that is just to see more external companies and communities problems here on earth be solved at the Institute by the use of space. And I just want to get more of my colleagues involved in those um, problem solving projects. So what you've mentioned, Alan, is around leveraging interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary thinking and problem solving in order to find new ways of thinking to approach situations in a different way. This sort of thinking is taking on breaking down silos both within disciplines and across geographies in a novel way. Why do you think that this is so important to being able to bring not only space into the way that we solve problems, but into approaching problems in a more effective way moving forward into the future? I think the silos we've seen created for very perhaps good historical reasons, perhaps not so good, but they exist all the same. The first stage in breaking that down is to have a common language or to understand you know, the terminology or the time skills or working environments of the other. And that could be, you know, engineering projects typically are larger and must be de-risk versus software projects, right, which are typically a lot more easy to spin up, at least in terms of the initial risk appetite. And But trying to get these groups to work together is fundamental to solving those bigger challenges. And really, space offers a unifying domain where we can find commonality across discipline areas, where we can leverage each other's experience and strengths and really find those problems more amenable to solutions through that combined approach. And just to give an example, we're hearing a lot about the potential for agriculture to be leveraged, to be improved in ways through space. And I think that's true, but you'll need the full gamut of discipline areas to realize that benefit. If you want to support agriculture and increase productivity, say, you'll need to be speaking to the farmers. You'll need to be speaking to potentially geneticists and better understand crop yields. What are the critical things to be monitoring? Is it salinity? Is it the soil moisture content? Are there other indicators of crop health, right? So you speak to the experts in the fields on, on the ground, and then you speak to sensor developments, right? So you go into the optics group at the university, you start to speak to them about, you know, why have we not used this wavelength before? What is the challenge associated with that? And then, of course, you have to speak to the software engineers and try to understand, you know, what are the requirements? And yes, you could do that either sequentially or you could do it separately, but you're going to get a much better outcome, a more optimal design and one that is fit for purpose and hasn't got either over-engineering or, or under-engineering that we only realize later, challenges to it by having everyone together as much as possible. And I think the challenge is commonality of language across those groups and also a generosity of time and investment into each other to understand those problems and to better understand how an optimal outcome might not quite be the best for your narrow field of interest, but it is the sacrifice in that ultimate bespoke pristine solution that you would have liked, but it is one that delivers for the project or the mission in, in general. So I think it's that group collective thinking can really work to give the best optimal outcome, even when your specific component to it may not be the best or most pristine version of itself, right? It just wasn't worth spending the extra dollars or the extra research time, whatever it may have been, to develop that because it wasn't actually needed for the end user, for example. So I think that that's, that's the kind of insight that you'll get from breaking down 
silos and having a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approach to these problems. What do you see as the biggest cultural challenges that stand in the way of collaborative thinking and working together to solve these really large problems such as climate change or social inequality? I think it's about commonality of language again. And by that, I mean, we all love our nomenclature and that can be exclusionary. It can be a challenge to find the right person. Not everyone is willing or able to collaborate in that multidisciplinary way. I think it takes a certain aspect of curiosity, a certain sense of willing to invest your time in another's field, as it were, to try to better understand their needs and requirements. And we're not really set up for that in mainstream industry or even education. We do work within silos for very good reasons, right? We have to, you know, if you're building a rocket, you've got to be focused on the rocket, right? You've got to do 10 years uh, of engineering and then perhaps a PhD on top of that. You know, you've got to be working on and become a specialist. So we need specialists, but we also need to have an environment that welcomes those specialists spending time speaking to others and trying to work through bridges and you know the institute that i lead is an example of that we have formalized an arrangement to allow both those specialists within the university to collaborate and also to better make that bridge to external partners as well and, and try to get everything working on a time scale that makes sense for those external partners you mentioned things like climate change and i think those are not just multidisciplinary challenges they're also multinational but worse yet, it's also multi-decadal, right? You've got to sustain awareness and commitment of work and research and development and deployment of solutions and take up by the public and everything else that comes with all of that. And you've got to sustain that over decades. And I think that that's perhaps even the greatest challenge about it. By broadening the problem and those welcomed into its solution, and hopefully also by supporting and funding that, you build a critical momentum and mass that can actually sustain such problem solvings over that time scale that is just otherwise perhaps insurmountable. I think that that is one of the hardest challenges. And I don't think our typical approaches or time scales where a quarterly report or an annual lends itself to those kind of longer term problems. And it's maybe just something as a sector we have to approach and recognize that every time we do take on a new problem or a project, we build and document the tools, have an open source mindset and approach so that at the end of that project, we don't find ourselves back to square one and all those advancements have been lost. If we can't sustain it within a single funded project for 30 years, at least we have built the building blocks that the next project, next approach, multidisciplinary approach to solving that problem can, can build upon. And I think that mindset of an open source community lends itself very well to that kind of approach. Why do you think that the link between space and spatial is a symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship? I'm curious about what you see as the potential of this relationship and where it could lead in the future. What's holding us back from being more as an industry? Look, I think to most of the public, space and spatial are one and the same. And while there is an historical distinction, I think it's fair to say that one can't deliver its full impact without the other. That idea of continuity of monitoring both in location and then the, perhaps the visible uh, state of, of the area around it, that's an incredibly powerful fusion that then when you add in the historical or temporal aspects, 
a rich legacy of data, perhaps from Orbit or even just another instances of acquiring imagery, you might then gain the maximal level of insights. As a potential example, you know, let's imagine you're trying to buy a house. You go, you've got your smartphone, you point your smartphone, you've got precision location, the device knows exactly where you are, you outline the contours of the house or the area around, you then use a, you know, a 30 year history of monitoring from space to assess the flood risk using powerful AI tools. And all of this is then factored in and provided to you as a, you know, an approximate cost of potential insurance pricing, right? Or, um, you know, at least a, a risk uh, measure. And all of that should factor into your, your property price. Now, the key is all of that information exists, right? That is available to very large firms, insurance companies, and banks. The difference is it's not easily provided to you, the end user. So I think what's holding us back are the tools to share that information to more people and, and small businesses. A lot of the tools are there either in-house for, for very large or very black belt ninja level kind of space and spatial scientists. But for most people, it's, it's not there. And I, I want to highlight a couple of great initiatives, the CSIRO Easy Platform and the New South Wales Digital Twin ideas as, as great examples of trends in that direction where it's building platform, it's trying to share those insights to ever more people. We can build those tools, but we also then need to prepare the public and community groups through training, awareness raising, talks and the like to use those assets to their greatest potential. I can only share just how intimidating for a potential business to make use of space. It, it just seems insurmountable. It seems too large and, and scary, too nebulous, indeed a concept potentially. So I think, you know, that's what's holding us back. It's not so much the specific advanced technologies for delivering these insights, but rather for sharing the insights. I think that's what we've got to do as a sector. I think uh, Locate indeed is a great example of trying to bring everyone together and have everyone begin to share those kinds of examples and uh, learnings to each other to better enable that future. It's interesting you say that I'm very interested to understand what do you see as some of the assumptions that people can make about the space industry? <laughs> well, that it's all about astronauts, right? Like, like literally it's because you want to send people into space. That's usually number, the sort of assumption number one. I think the other is that it's expensive and that it's all about the hardware. So I think a lot of people envisage the space industry being a series of rocket launches, right? Uh, satellites. Perhaps if they're a little more aware of the sector, they'll be aware of perhaps Australia's role in the comms. And that's true, right? You need hardware. Of course you need hardware, but most of the value perhaps is some nine-tenths of it, certainly in terms of profits, is the downstream, the analytics, the software, the end user facing aspects. And I think that that's the assumption that most people miss. And I think that that's what we need to address as a community to see greater take up and embracing of the sector because everyone thinks it's about astronauts, they're not as willing or can't quite see the point of an Australian space industry. And I think that that's a challenge that we must address. I try to reinforce messaging. It's not about launching people into space and that's a wonderful thing to do and I love it, so don't get me wrong, but primarily the space industry and in particular in Australia, it is about helping solve people's problems, communities and companies' problems on earth through using space. And I think that's an assumption that most people miss, sadly. 
speaking about solving people and communities' problems, there's a lot of conversations at the moment around tech for good. How do you think that we can ensure that as we develop technologies and also allow technologies to create the data and the analytics that we need to provide solutions for people and communities, that we can do so in a way that is ethical for current and future generations? Yeah, this is, this is such a, a fundamental point. We have to be aware as a community that these awesome technologies and the insights we can provide the world are not ethically neutral. They can be used to monitor and surveil others without their awareness, much less permission. There's also the challenge of information asymmetry, where we don't enable the less powerful to access such, such valuable information. So those challenges exist and and the fusion of, of space and spatial together with advanced analytics and, and just a rich data environment that's connected and insights are provided that's a staggeringly powerful and exciting future but we have to be aware of the manner in which these tools are used and certainly for my talk i'll be sharing some examples of less than desirable outcomes of certain tools but you know, I want to emphasize, I'm still very excited about the future and about tech for good as an ideal. And there's two levels of responsibility as a personal, as a, as a member of this community. You know, we all help build tools or perform analysis or even an education briefing that can inform others and empower others, but all of that can be misused. So there is an aspect of personal responsibility. The point we may or may not be aware of the uses to which the things we do find a way, but if you are and you can see it going in a bad direction, that's a personal responsibility moment, right? It's not easy, but there it is. However, you create open source techniques, tools, and you offer that to all, then of course some can misuse that, right? And in the AI equivalent, the computer vision equivalent, that would be the example of deep fakes as, as one example. So then we have to do more. And we, as a community, well, perhaps individually, you can you can raise your voice, but it works better if it's in concert together. And as an industry, as a sector, we advocate to government for more robust and ethical legislation or standards. And I want to emphasize, we are not powerless to accept anything less than the very brightest and most ethical future. This is not something that has to happen to us, that we just have a laissez-faire attitude and we end up with some dystopian future. That does not have to be our future. We should not settle for anything less than the very brightest and most ethical future. So that is the ideal of tech for good, but it doesn't happen passively. It's not a natural outcome of improved technology. It's only through considered, concerted effort and awareness as individuals in the sector, but also as a sector as a whole, that we can ensure that that future is realized. And speaking of solutions for people and organizations and community as an industry, are there examples you can provide of how the space industry in Australia can help us to achieve things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? Yes, well, we have, uh, there's a, a recent World Economic Forum briefing pack for its Global Future Council on, on Space Technologies from last year. So I would encourage everyone to, to find that. But it makes clear that every single one of the SDGs can be assisted by space, uh, space technology. So 
just to take a few examples, increasing farm productivity uh, and improve tracking and distribution of foods to reduce spoilage and waste can make the second goal of zero hunger easier. The clean water and sanitation in goal six is supported by the remote monitoring of waterways, tracking of polluters and the like. With the affordable and clean energy in goal seven, we know you can improve the quality of solar energy forecasting by some 30% by using space technologies, right? Making that goal easier to reach. So, and they're all, absolutely every single one of them are in some way assisted by space. The wonderful outcome of all this is that we can use all of these technologies to support all of those goals here in Australia, as well as then support their use in other nations. So it's not that we do these things to the impoverishment of our own country, it is to the betterment of our own country, society, and their use to other nations and improvement of their situations as well. So it's just being committed and dedicated in our approach to the way that these problems are addressed and the solutions that are shared. That's just something that I think is so exciting and something that we will see more of in the short term because of this growth of the space sector. It's going to have these incredible benefits across that range of the SDGs, but only reaching its full potential if we're intentional in the sharing of those solutions. And so on that, how do you think that we all, as individuals, as businesses, as governments or academics, how can we be more courageous in adopting new approaches and harnessing new technology when it comes to developments in space and spatial? Uh, Look, I think we have to de-risk it. And I mean that both in the financial as well as operational sense. Perhaps even a third sense of there's the learning curve. It's very, um, very challenging and imposing. So we have to have our academics and space and spatial experts like Frontier SI or Mariota or Fleet. We have to have them all supported to create the information sessions and workshops and ongoing support for startups and SMEs who may have a special or specific technical question, especially if it's a new technology. But quite frankly, a lot of the time you've got, you know, one AI expert or EMO expert or someone within that startup or SME there's no one to talk to, right? I have half a dozen professors in computer vision who they could speak to, but only if we make the connection. And if those kinds of connections are supported and incentivized by government, for example. So we need greater funding for the early stages of business. The angel investors are great, but it's still a relatively shallow venture capital pool. And we need to allow more people to get into this sector, to create these exciting new businesses, utilizing these new technologies in innovative ways without risking their homes. <laughs> you, you, right now, the success of the sector is it's more down to the incredible supporting networks that are often based on donated time and personal sacrifice. And that's, that's not a sustainable approach when we want to see this sector grow, especially not if it comes to new and exciting technologies. And I think that's going to take government support. There's only so much we can ask of universities, academics, or businesses to pro bono that basically. It's just not going to be a way to see that, that adoption of new technologies. Certainly in this, in this nascent stage, it's got to come from government. A little bit more about you now, Alan. Who are some of your mentors either inside or outside of the industry? And how have they changed the way that you work or the way that you think about what's possible? 
so I've just finished a several year project with two incredible engineers from Planet, Giovanni Artisio and Ignacio Zuleta. And, you know, I don't know if I can be so bold as to call them my mentors, but certainly what I've learned from them, their strategic vision of this sector, space and spatial sector, of the, the end user needs, as well as the technical details and realities of space hardware and the operating environment for a company, even one as, as large, successful as Planet, has been incredibly valuable to my growth in this area. And I think it's only further excited me to work more in this area, to, to be more involved in this incredibly dynamic and exciting and interconnected field. The, I always knew that space was cool. <laughs> but I, I think until I, I was working with, with these guys from Planet, I, didn't, I don't think I quite realized how much the, the future was actually here today. And I think that that combined with the insights, as I've mentioned before, they shared with me and were very generous in their time to, to help me learn through very dumb questions on my part um, have, been, uh, have been valuable. If you could give one piece of advice to somebody who's looking to get into the space industry, what would that be? I get this opportunity a lot. I must admit, it's really quite pleasing and a little bit intimidating and terrifying a sense of responsibility where people ask you for this. I guess my main first bit of advice is to not discount your expertise to date, especially when you're translating in, across fields. What you know through potentially years of hard work, of training, of education, and indeed in the workforce can or at least should be applied in space domain. And I think it's sometimes can be hard to see how the relevancy of that is presented or the way that one can do this best. But I really think it's worthwhile spending the time by chatting to lots of people in the industry and the figures. Um, and I, often I can make those introductions to people and that's great. But it's, it's up to them to follow through and have those conversations and really begin to see how their skills and knowledge can be transferred. I don't want them to discount that and, have, and think that they have to start again. It's something that we do, you know, maybe that, that level of translation is then just, it's a micro-credential, which we do, we do at Swinburne or it's a, one of our co-majors in, in space. You know, it's all about taking what you know and finding its place in that sector now for some things you will need a deep core expertise right if you're building rockets i'm sorry but you're probably going to have to do engineering or aerospace engineering right that's fine understandable but almost everything else you can translate prior knowledge and expertise within and i think that's the focus or should be the focus for someone in wanting to get into the space sector is to spend the time to consider how that's possible and not just discount it because I think it's incredibly valuable. What excites you the most about Locate 21? So look, the ability to have world experts in space and spatial technologies and the innovative end users of those technologies all together, you know, it's, that's the magic, right? It's exciting to see the ideas that are sparked in such meetings, but then also have the chance to be involved in the new collaborations and projects which may come from those those ideas that's that's the magic of of locate and certainly something i'm looking forward to and so this year's theme for locate is convergence collaboration and community towards a stronger economy what does that mean to you personally it means it means an openness to discussion 
the sharing of techniques and ideas, providing a process to have end user needs shared, discussed and delivered upon. At Swinburne, we have a data for social good cloud innovation center. This is a partnership we're powered by Amazon Web Services. And that's a wonderful place, an example where we have community groups and everyone from government to NGOs to SMEs have come in and they've shared their need and problem. And then it is a partnership with them to co-create the solutions. If I build a widget and give it to someone, then it's almost never going, it it may be great, it may work, um, it may be fit for purpose, but that's more luck than anything else, right? You've got to co-create these solutions and have ownership of those solutions because otherwise they won't be taken up. And that's that idea of convergence and collaboration community. And towards a strong economy, that will come, right? That will come from the deployment of these kinds of products and services and solutions. But as I will share in my talk there, while there's awareness within the academic and industrial sectors of the benefits of space, and that's indeed at an all-time high, right? It's fever pitch awareness. I would argue that there's fewer who are aware of the sector than use the products from it. And Google Maps is the perfect example, right? So I think the success of space and spatial is how ubiquitous it has become, but that very success is itself a challenge. If we want to see that stronger economy, the benefits from that, those new technologies, we'll have to ensure wider community awareness and, as I say, co-creation in those products and services and, and solutions. So it is very fitting, this theme, I believe, this year. It's, it's very timely, and I hope to see great things come from it. My last question of the day, Alan, is around you again. As individuals, we all work towards a meaningful life and career. And you are definitely a shining star in the spatial and space industries. So I'd like to ask you in terms of forward thinking, what legacy would you like to create for future generations? Legacy, wow, big L, huh? I think the awareness of what kinds of questions that that generation can ask, the way in which to approach those new questions, and the tools to investigate and lead to answers, both, I mean, in the sense of training and a scientific method and approach to questions and and answering them, as well as the software or hardware sense. I think it's through education and research today, you empower the future generation of tomorrow to find the answers to the questions they need to ask. I'm, I'm not coming up with those questions. It's the questions they need to ask of their time. But to help that, to empower that, what greater legacy there be than that that's beautiful thank you so much for making the time today i have really enjoyed this conversation and i'm completely certain that all of our listeners will gain many gems of wisdom thank you so much alan thank you so much it's been a it's been a pleasure (laughs) 